Not long ago, I picked up a slogan from a friend, which you can remember with this abbreviation, ABC. Always be celebrating. Always be celebrating. And around here, it seems like there's always something to celebrate. So in true celebratory fashion, we have been marking a number of important anniversaries. Our church was founded in 1821 by an enterprising young pastor named William Patton. And accordingly, this past fall, we celebrated the 200th anniversary of church, of Central Church and the resounding story of Central's mission in New York City. And this spring, we marked the 100th anniversary of our building, 593 Park Avenue, which was first constructed in 1922 with funding principally provided by John D. Rockefeller Jr. and his father, John D. Rockefeller father, father Sr. Now, the Rockefellers were Baptists, so when this church was first built, it was known as Park Avenue Baptist Church. And the very first service was held on Palm Sunday, April 9th, 1922. And we know from the New York Times that from the very moment that this church first opened, it was known as the Little Cathedral. We also know that at the time, the organ was incomplete. And so the choir sang to the accompaniment of a piano and stringed instruments, not unlike what we've done today. Now, our organ currently is inoperable, whereas theirs was incomplete. But not for long, because thanks to the generous support of many people who are here in this sanctuary, plans are now underway to restore our organ to its original beauty. Well, I'd like to tell you one funny story that we also know from the New York Times, which took place two weeks after the church first opened on April 23rd. Apparently, the total cost of construction for this building in the 20s was $1.5 million, but the project ran a little bit over budget. And so on April 23rd, when people filed into the sanctuary, they would have discovered a glossy adding machine set up here on the chancel to the right of the pulpit. And then the chair of the building committee, Mr. Ardry, stepped into the pulpit itself and proceeded to inform the congregation that the Rockefeller family had made a matching gift. And right then and there, in the sanctuary during the worship service, he asked the members of the congregation to fill out pledge cards in order to raise a total of $50,000 in order to wipe out that debt. And so according to the New York Times, an expert operator took his place right there at the adding machine. Men and women in their seats scribbled on pledge cards or produced blanks already filled out. Back came the ushers thrusting the high piled plates at Mr. Ardry. And one after another, he read off the amounts, omitting names, and nimble fingers punched the keys. The printed strip from the machine lengthened, the wheels and ratchets clicked, and presently Mr. Ardry was done. Two jabs at keys and levers and the total was read off, $54,999. There were a half dozen quick offers to contribute one more dollar. The operator poked another key. $55,000, announced Mr. Ardry. $5,000 more than we needed. Well, thankfully, we've already raised nearly all the money we need to restore our little cathedral to its original beauty. And we did it all debt-free. And we never even had to resort resort to the pressure tactics of putting an adding machine here in the sanctuary in the middle of a worship service. 
But today on this 100th anniversary of our building, I'd like to take a step back and ask an all-important question. This church has experienced dramatic renewal over the past 15 years. We've seen God raise up this old dead church from the ashes. From God, by God's grace, we've recentered the church on Jesus. We've affiliated with a new denomination. We've raised the funds to fix up the building. We've expanded our staff in order to meet the needs of a growing and thriving congregation. We've launched a number of new initiatives. And yet we need to stop and ask ourselves the big question, which is, what's the point? What's the point of all this? What's the point of the church? What's the end goal? Why do we do the things that we do? And if you want to ask that question, well, then there's no better place to go than Luke 24. Because Luke 24 records a couple of different accounts of the risen Jesus appearing to his followers. And through these conversations, Jesus addresses a number of the big questions. And so today, I'd like us to take up three, three big questions. What's the point of the Bible? What's the point of the church? And what's the point of your life? So if you would, let me invite you to open up to Luke 24. I'll be reading verses 36 through 49. The passage is printed for you in the bulletin, and you can find it on page 885 of the Pew Bible. This is Luke 24, verses 36 through 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Well, let me set a little context. Everything in Luke 24 takes place on that very first Easter. So earlier in this chapter, following the resurrection of Jesus, Two of his disciples are taking a walk, a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to the village called Emmaus. And as they're walking and talking, Jesus draws near, and he becomes part of their conversation, but they don't recognize him at first. There's something different and yet the same about Jesus' resurrected body. And so as he draws near, he asks them what they're discussing with one another. And they are shocked that this stranger hasn't heard the news of what had taken place just that past Friday about Jesus of Nazareth and about how he had been 
crucified. And you can hear the dejection in their voices because they had pinned all of their hopes on Jesus. They were convinced that he was the Messiah. But rather than rescuing Israel from their enemies, Jesus had gone and gotten himself killed by their enemies. So in verse 21, they say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But everybody knows messiahs don't die, messiahs win. So as far as they were concerned, a dead messiah was a failed messiah. And they go on to explain that some of the women in their company had gone to the tomb early that morning, but they did not find Jesus' body. And they came back saying that they had been told that Jesus was alive. But of course, they all found this rather hard to believe. And it's precisely at that moment that Jesus says in verses 25 through 27, O foolish ones, and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Well, in the passage that I just read a moment ago, we read that later that day, these same two disciples have now returned to Jerusalem after their trip to Emmaus. And they go and they find the original 11 apostles as well as other followers of Jesus. They tell them what has happened. And then once again, Jesus appears in the midst of them. And he says much the same thing. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And did you hear that? He says, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So what is Jesus saying? Remember that at this point, the New Testament had not yet been written. So when Jesus refers to the scriptures, he's referring to the Hebrew scriptures. He's referring to what we know as the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was often broken into three parts. So when Jesus speaks of the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that was a shorthand way of referring to all of the scriptures. So Jesus is saying, look, if you knew your Bible, if you knew the scriptures, you should have known that this was going to happen. Rather than being depressed by the fact that Jesus died and slow to believe that he had been raised from the dead, you should have known it. You should have expected it. You should have been waiting for it. Because this, Jesus says, is what the Bible is all about. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the point of the Bible? What kind of book is the Bible? What would you say? I think the vast majority of people would say that the Bible is a book of moral instruction. Whether you're talking about rules or regulations, and there are quite a few rules and regulations in the Bible, some of them a little bit strange, I'll admit, but whether you're talking about the rules or the regulations of the scriptures, or the moral exemplars that we're meant to emulate, or the negative examples that we're supposed to avoid, whether you're talking about the poetry of the Psalms or the practical advice of the book of Proverbs, whether you're talking about the teaching of Jesus or the apostles, most people would say that the Bible is a book of moral instruction. It gives us words to live by. 
And we're supposed to listen to those words, heed those words in order to become good moral people. But what if I told you that that view of the Bible was all wrong? Yes, it's true that the Bible contains words of comfort and counsel and guidance and advice about how to live a virtuous life. But at the end of the day, that's not the ultimate purpose of the Bible. That's not what the Bible is all about. You know, the Bible is not a book of moral instruction. The Bible is a book of Christ. The purpose of the Bible is not to tell you what you need to do in order to become a good moral person. Rather, the purpose of the Bible is to disclose your need for a Savior and to reveal the Savior who has made himself known in the person of Jesus to rescue you from your faults and your failures. That is what Jesus is talking about when he says that he interpreted in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is saying that ultimately the Bible is all about him. The Bible is not a book of moral instruction. It's a book of Christ. The Bible tells one story. And the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the relationship between promise and fulfillment. You see, the prophecies of the Old Testament foretell Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant spoken of by Isaiah, for example. The images of the Old Testament prefigure Jesus. Jesus is, for example, the sacrificial lamb of Passover. And the characters of the Old Testament foreshadow Jesus. Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. Jesus is the priest greater than Aaron. Jesus is the king greater than David. See, the Bible ultimately is all about him. Now, see the difference that that makes. If you read the book of Jonah as a book of moral instruction, how will you read it? How will you teach it to other people? Well, you'll teach it probably the way that most people teach it in Sunday school. What's the lesson of the story of Jonah? Well, the lesson is don't be like Jonah. Don't begrudge God's kindness and generosity. Don't try to run away from God's call upon your life. But if you read the story of Jonah as a book of Christ rather than a book of moral instruction, how do you read it? Well, then you read it the way that Jesus did. Because what did Jesus himself say in Matthew 12? Just as Jonah was in the heart of the great fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. You see, the whole scripture is ultimately pointing us forward to Jesus, to his death and his resurrection. And that makes all the difference in the world. Now, that's not to suggest that every verse in the Old Testament by itself, independently and in isolation, can be stretched in order to point you to Jesus in some allegorical sort of way. Now, some verses point directly to Jesus. Others are a little bit more remote. But as they link together, they lead you to Jesus. Old English commentators used to say that just as every country lane or road in England, not in isolation, but linking up together, will eventually lead you to London. So every book, every chapter, every verse in the Bible, not necessarily in isolation or independently, but linking up together, will eventually lead you to Jesus. So the Old Testament prepares you for Jesus. The Gospels proclaim Jesus. The book of Acts, the epistles, the book of Revelation reflect on the meaning of Jesus for our lives. But do you see the difference that that makes? If you read the Bible as a book of instruction, well, then it's ultimately about you. 
It's about what you need to do in order to clean up your act, become a good moral person in order to win God's love and respect. But if, in fact, the Bible is a book of Christ, well, then it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And it's not about what you must do for God. No, it's about what Jesus has already done for you by his grace in order to rescue you from your sin. You see, the Bible is a book of redemption, not moral instruction. And so how should you read the Bible? Well, you should read the, the Bible the way that Jesus did. You read the Bible looking for Jesus, and you keep looking until you find him. But that's not all. You should not only read the Bible messianically, but missionally. So what do I mean by that? Well, think of a mission statement. What's a mission statement? A mission statement sums up the purpose of an organization. It explains the organization's purpose. And the big idea is that God has a mission. God has a purpose and a goal for all of creation. And what is his goal? God's mission is to reconcile you in relationship to himself and to renew the whole world. God's mission is to make himself known to the ends of the earth. Now, during our call to worship this morning, we read from Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 9. And there, Isaiah gives us a picture of what the world will be like when God is king and renews all things. And Isaiah says that on that day, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, that is a rich metaphor. Think about that for a moment. What does it mean for the waters to cover the sea? The waters are the sea. And so what is Isaiah trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that God's mission, God's goal, is to fill all of creation with the knowledge of him. God wants every atom to vibrate with the knowledge of the Lord. He wants to make himself known, and he wants to make himself known savingly. That is what the Bible is all about. God is on a mission, and he will not stop until it is accomplished. And so look again at what Jesus says then in verses 46 and 47. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus is telling us that the Bible finds its focus and fulfillment not only in the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of the Messiah, but also in that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And this has led the theologian Christopher Wright to say, Jesus' whole sentence here comes under the rubric, this is what is written. Luke does not present Jesus as quoting any specific verse from the Old Testament, but he claims that the mission of preaching repentance and forgiveness to the nations in his name is what is written. He seems to be saying that the whole of the scriptures, which we now know as the Old Testament, find its focus and fulfillment both in the life and death and resurrection of Israel's Messiah and in the mission to all nations, which flows from that event. The proper way for disciples of the crucified and risen Jesus to read their scriptures is messianically and missionally. Because that's what the Bible is all about. It's about revealing Jesus as the Messiah and about revealing God's mission 
to make himself known. And if that's true, then what's the point of the church? Well, the point of the church is to participate in God's mission. Why does the church exist? Why do we come together? Why do we meet in this place? Why do we do the things that we do? There's one reason. It is to make God known. It is to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus, which is the result of the events that we celebrate during Holy Week, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So do you get the point? Jesus never calls us into relationship with himself without calling us to participate in his mission to the world. And that mission is not just for some Christians, some of the time, somewhere else. No, that mission is for all Christians, all the time, everywhere. There's no participation in Jesus without participation in his mission. And a church that fails to be missional fails to be a church. And we all know how easy it can be from our own experience for a church to lose sight of that mission and to lose sight of the very reason why it exists. So I'll tell you another story from 100 years ago, the same year that this building was built. There was a Baptist pastor named Harry Emerson Fosdick who taught and preached at First Presbyterian Church on West 12th Street and 5th Avenue. And this very month, 100 years ago, on May 21st, 1922, he preached a now infamous sermon entitled, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? It was in the middle of the fundamentalist modernist controversy, and in that one sermon, he tried to marginalize the historic Christian faith and to promote a, a new, updated, modernist form of Christianity. So in that one sermon, believe it or not, in one sermon, he found a way to deny the virgin birth, the reality of miracles, the death of Jesus as an atonement for sin, the inspiration of Scripture, and the promised return of Jesus, all in one sermon. And as a result, that sermon sparked such a great controversy that he was forced to resign his position at First Presbyterian Church. But a couple years later, he found a new friend, and you know who that new friend was? John D. Rockefeller, Jr. And so Rockefeller recruited Harry Emerson Fosdick to be the second pastor of what was then known as Park Avenue Baptist Church. And so Fosdick, for many years, preached from this very pulpit. So from this pulpit, Harry Emerson Fosdick often would have denied some of the most central aspects of the Christian faith. But you'll be happy to know that I make it my aim to try not to preach heresy if I can avoid it. And in fact, I take, take, I take great delight in affirming all those things that Fosdick denied. I take great delight in affirming the reality of miracles, the virgin conception of Jesus, the inspiration of Scripture, the substitutionary atonement, and the promised return of Jesus to make all things new, because that's the point. That's the point. That's why we're here. That's why the church exists. It is to reveal Jesus as Savior and to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name to all the nations. Our job is to proclaim that truth so that all people might discover 
the reality of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us so that they might experience the life transformation that only Jesus can bring. And already we see that in our midst. Lives are changing. Lives are changing within our congregation because of the message of the gospel. So we've considered this question, well, what's the point of the Bible and what's the point of the church? But there's one more question we need to take up, which is, what's the point of your life? And you see, here's the best part. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. God is fully capable of carrying out his plans in the world. He doesn't need any of us. And yet he gives us this astonishing privilege of being part of his work in the world. And so what is the point of your life? Well, the point of your life is to join Jesus in his mission to make all things new. Notice at the end of verse 48, Jesus tells his followers, you are witnesses of these things. Now, of course, the original apostles were witnesses in an utterly unique sense because they were eyewitnesses of Jesus during his earthly ministry and following his resurrection. But in a derivative sense, this is the calling of every Christian. Every Christian is called to be a witness, to give testimony to who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. And I love that word witness. You know why? Because it takes all the pressure off. Think of a witness who is asked to stand in the take the witness stand, and and, and to testify. A witness is, is not expected to be an expert, but rather simply to share what they've seen, what they've heard, so that others might discover the truth. And so it is for us as Christians, our job is not to try to generate or produce the forgiveness of sins and the deep, lasting life that flows from it. No, we simply share it. We simply pass it on. Forgiveness of sins and deep lasting life are the free gift of Jesus that he extends to those who put their simple trust in him. So our job is simply to share Jesus in such a way that people might discover that Jesus truly is the risen Lord for themselves and that by simple trust in him, they might receive the new life that he offers. But do you realize, therefore, the significance of your life? The historian Rodney Stark wrote a book entitled The Rise of Christianity. And in this book, he asks this seemingly simple question. How is it that the early Christian movement, this tiny, obscure little sect from the remote part of the Roman Empire, suddenly dislodged the gods of old paganism and became the dominant faith of Western civilization? How did that happen? And how did that happen so quickly? And Stark's answer, in part, is that the reason why Christianity overtook the ancient world is because the earliest Christians did not withdraw from the broader society. Now, yes, it's true. They gathered together for worship and for teaching on the first day of every week. But then they spent the rest of the week scattered, scattered in their various vocations and callings in life, and that is how Christianity spread. And you see, that's what needs to happen again today. They were living in a pre-Christian society. We are living in a post-Christian society, a society that in many ways is all the more resistant to Christianity for once having been so deeply influenced and shaped by it. 
And so how is it today that people will come to know that Jesus is the key that unlocks the door to the very meaning and purpose of our lives? I certainly can't do it alone. We can't expect in the secular world in which we live that people are going to just show up on Sundays to hear a sermon. Some may, but we can't just wait for people to come to us. No, we have to go to them. We have to go to them. So it's not the church gathered in the sanctuary, but rather it's the church scattered throughout the world, scattered in our vocations and callings that will change the world around us. So you collectively know far more people who need to hear the message of the gospel, who need to know Jesus through your relationships and spheres of influence than I ever could. And what does that mean, therefore? Well, that means that you need to reflect the difference that Jesus makes in your life through all of your acting and thinking and speaking. You have to learn to act with Jesus' heart, to think with Jesus' mind, to speak with Jesus' voice in order to help people see that only Jesus can satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. So that's the mission that he's entrusted to you. And let me tell you why this is so important. We live in a culture that is starved for meaning. We try to find some kind of meaning, some kind of point to all of the activities in which we immerse ourselves, but that's increasingly hard to do in the secular age in which we live. The atheist philosopher Luke Ferry has said that we throw ourselves into various projects that seem to have at least some kind of point, and we try to find some kind of satisfaction, some kind of fulfillment in developing our minds or honing our skills or raising our children or caring for our friends, but if we ever dare to stop and ask ourselves, what is the point of it all? Is there any meaning to all these little meanings? As a secular person, it's very hard to come up with an answer. A secular person is often stumped. A secular person might say, well, is there any meaning to my life that will not inevitably be swept away by death? But you see, a Christian has a very different answer to that question. What is the point? What is the point of my life? What is the point of all of our singing and praying, the point of all of our reading and studying, our preaching and teaching, our serving and sharing? What's the point of forgiving and reconciling, working and playing, loving and laughing? Well, the point is that if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then everything we do now matters because everything will last into God's promised future. So let me end with one final illustration. Many of you all know that Steve Jobs founded Apple Computer in his garage in 1976. And in 1983, he found himself in a position where he needed to recruit an experienced executive to help manage the company's growth. And so he tried to woo John Scully from Pepsi to become his new leader. And apparently, Scully was a little bit reluctant to take this new role. He was sort of a marketing whiz. He made a name for himself with the Pepsi challenge. But eventually, Steve Jobs won Scully over to Apple by saying, look, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? What is the point of your life? 
Well, you could effectively spend it doing nothing more than what amounts to selling sugar water. Or you could respond to the call of Jesus, who says, come with me and join me in my mission to change the world. What is the point of the Bible? What is the point of the church? What is the point of your life? It is to know Jesus and to make him known. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that we can celebrate the 100th anniversary of this building, 593 Park Avenue, which we now call home. And Lord, we thank you for the dramatic work of renewal that you have wrought in our midst. And we pray that on this day, you would remind us what it's all about. The reason why we're here, the reason why we gather, the reason why we come together, the reason why we serve is to know you and to make you known. And so help us, Father, to be faithful to the purpose to which you have called us. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.